right, well, we'll go ahead and get started tonight. Um, we're going to be back over there in Philippians. Uh, we're going to take a look at uh, a little bit of the last chapter or last few verses of chapter three and then move into to chapter four. But uh, we'll go ahead and pray, and uh, then we will uh, just kind of get into um, studying here. Dear Heavenly Father, we are again very thankful that we have this opportunity to be here. We're thankful that, uh, Lord, you've just given us a great day, that, uh, Lord, we can just enjoy uh, some some nice weather and uh, just, uh, again, enjoy uh, the beauty that you've created. And, Lord, I pray that uh, tonight that we would just uh, see what you've given to us in your word, and we would find uh, the beauty that's there, the Lord, uh, the joy and the unity together as believers, and uh, Lord, the promises that you give us. I pray, Lord, that you just be with me tonight, that you would speak through me, that this time would be pleasing and honoring unto you. And thank you again for all that you've given to us above all the salvation that we have through you that uh, just brings us all together. And uh, again, Lord, um, our Holy Spirit that teaches us uh, from your word. And these things, Lord, I do ask and pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so we kind of left off a little bit um, there towards the end of chapter 3. Uh, I didn't really want to run roughshod over that last verse um, where he's talking about in verse 20, he says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So uh, in in this verse, in verse 21, we obviously see that he's talking about Jesus Christ making a change in our lives. Now, one of the key things that we as Christians truly hold uh, very dear is the fact that we will receive glorified bodies one day. Uh, uh, a body that is not bound by the things and the constraints of this world and sin, uh, that isn't bound by uh, sickness and death, but it is very clear that it is something that is um, uh, a, a just, if you will, a, a huge promise for us as believers, uh, especially when we're struggling with uh, things of the flesh and struggling with uh, health issues or anything of that nature, we we just kind of hold those promises a little bit more near and dear to us. And, and I just kind of want to say one thing about that is, you know, uh, uh, this, this past week, uh, has been kind of one of those tough weeks for, for, for me with, uh, my back issues and stuff. And I tell you, one of the things that I really truly just enjoy thinking about is that one day there is the promise that I will not have to deal with this anymore. And, and it's just, it's such a, 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 a comfort to realize that that as believers, we have that promise. This is something that God has told us that we are going to one day receive. And he talks about it being a glorious body here that is going to be fashioned unto him. And, and, and again, there's a lot, there's a lot to be talked about when we start thinking about that glorified body that Christ was here on earth with. So after he was, um, crucified and he was in the grave three days and three nights in the tomb and then he rose from the dead he ascended he got a glorified body and then came back and he appeared unto people 
He appeared unto the disciples. He appeared unto women. He appeared unto, uh, as it says, 500. Uh, he appeared unto all of these individuals that very clearly could see that his body was, again, very tangible, as in it was able to be touched. It wasn't some sort of, you know, erythral ghost or spirit. It wasn't something that was some sort of hologram or apparition. It was something that was very, very tangible. Uh, he sat down and he ate. Uh, he broke bread. He had conversations. Uh, he walked and talked. You could see the scars that he told Thomas uh, that he could touch. Um, he, he came and prepared a meal for the, the disciples. Um, and, uh, and when he was talking to Peter about, lovest thou me more than these? And, and we, we see very clearly that his body was very capable of doing things. I mean, he just showed up in the midst of them one day. And then he ascended, and then he he, he did, uh, while he was breaking bread with uh, uh, the individuals that were walking on the way over there in, in Luke 24, uh, what happened? After he broke bread and gave thanks, he just whoo, disappeared. He was gone. And it, it is just kind of amazing to think about that and think about what that body will be like. But one of the things that that, that I really treasure about this promise is that it just draws me nearer to the Lord. Because I want to know more about him in what that's going to be like. I want to know more about uh, what exactly that's going to entail. And as we, there's a few passages that reference these things. And I want us to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and and we'll actually, um, Lord willing, we might come back to this chapter again as we move through chapter 4 here. But 1 Corinthians 15 is a very important chapter. Uh, First Corinthians has got a lot of chapters that are, uh, um, uh, you know, very good doctrine and sound biblical doctrine for a believer in practical Christian life. Um, there's, you know, there's verses in passages of scripture that talk about prophecy and things of the, the last times and, and end time prophecies, things of that nature. There's other doctrinal things about Israel and the body of Christ and, and how all of that works, salvation. But when you get to 1 Corinthians 15, it's a very, if you will, pivotal chapter of the book, even though it's towards the last. Because in the first part, he talks about what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of him. But what we go through is we get towards the end of this, as he talks about the, the, the necessity and the preaching of the gospel in the first part, as you get towards the end of it here, he starts talking about some things to come. As he goes through, he talks about uh, the different glories that are there. And as we go down to the end of it here in verse 50, he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. So he makes it fairly clear here that there's a spiritual component, which is why he's talking about all of this. There's a spiritual component he wants to get these believers to understand. That spiritual component is that we can't do things in our flesh to obtain the kingdom of God, to get into that. Now, the kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is talking about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is a spiritual thing. It's the connection. That kingdom of God is necessary for the kingdom of heaven. But again, that they're separate in their nature. But what we find here is he's saying, we can't have eternal life, we can't have a spiritual connection and reconciliation 
with God with, through, through our own flesh. It's just not possible. Uh, it, it's incapable of inheriting. It's incapable of doing anything to save us. Our own blood can't save us. Our own blood can't save anyone else in that capacity. Because in verse 51, he talks about something that's very different. And what he's getting at is we're not going to have a physical body go to heaven that is corrupt like this, that's going to have issues. Uh, when a person trusts Christ as their Savior, some of the things that we talk about in Scripture seem very foreign to them. One of the things is this idea that uh, of what heaven's going to be like. And there's a few limited verses that we see in Scripture that talk about it and talk about what the eternal life looks like, what heaven looks like, what this glorified body looks like. So we have a few passages that are there. But one thing is very clear is, is that we're not going to have the same type of physical body that we have now because we know it's corrupt. We know it's corrupt. Our body reminds us it's corrupt. Every single day, it reminds us. And what he says here is he's getting to this idea and this concept of we're not going to have the same infirmities that we're going to have here on earth that we're going to have. We're not going to have those in heaven. That's not going to be. In verse 51, he says, behold, I show you a mystery. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So what he's talking about here is he's talking about, if you will, what is often referred to as the rapture. He's talking about this in the form of he's saying not everybody is going to pass away. They will be caught up in the air. We'll take a look at a couple of verses there. He says, we shall not all sleep, but here's the important thing. He says, but we shall all be changed. In order for us to be in God's presence, this physical body has to be done away with, and we have to receive a glorified one. In verse 52, it says, in, in, the, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So here he's very clearly talking about something that is a future event. Now, obviously, these individuals, they did pass away. So we can see the timeless nature of the way that God writes Scripture for us. We 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 may pass away here on earth, but there may be some that will not. And they will be caught up in the air, as we'll see here in a moment. But one thing that is very clear here is he talks about in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, people are going to be changed. Sometimes people think about that that concept and they think that they're going to be caught up and that that moment in the twinkling of an eye is going to happen that fast. Now he's talking about the change here in verse 50, 52. It says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. He's not talking about getting caught up. He's talking about immediately having a new body. That's how quickly it happens. There's no evolutionary process involved with this. It's, it's, it's the word of God that does this. It's the word of God that changes us very instantly, we see. This is a promise that we have as believers. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians 4. This is another kind of parallel passage that goes along with that one. And here he is. He's comforting these Philippians saying, look, you know, we, we, we understand we struggle with that mind of Christ. 
We understand that we struggle with sin. We understand that we struggle with about what we're supposed to do and how we may do things. And if you will, looking towards that end goal, that mark that he's talking about. And that mark, that prize that he's talking about is this right here. The promise of God. That one day we're not going to have these issues. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, take a look at uh, verse uh, 15 here. <clears throat> In verse 15, it says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Saying basically, those that are dead in Christ, those are the ones that will be changed first. And he talks about this, and he says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. This is an important part. This is an important part of our comfort. The the Thessalonians were going through a rough time. They were being heavily persecuted, and they needed some good comfort, knowing that regardless of what was going to happen, that we were going to be with the Lord. Now, he's not talking... Now, some people try to stuff something called soul sleep in here. All right? Soul sleep is one of the most ridiculous things that I've ever heard in my entire life. Uh, soul sleep is basically where they say, oh, um, because he talks about those which are, are um, asleep being caught up, that they're asleep in the grave and they're not they're not in heaven right now. That's not what he says. Paul actually says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know what he's talking about here. He's talking about a physical body. He's talking about it getting, uh, the, the, the being, if you will, rematerialized to a, a body that is of what Christ had when he resurrected. So we see here that these are promises that we as believers get. These are things that we as as Christians, it's part of this inheritance. It's part of what we receive with our eternal life. And this is something that, again, we press towards. We press towards that day. And we continue to press towards that day regardless of what happens here on earth. There is the continual desire to please him and to fulfill his will. This is exactly what he's talking about in this chapter, what the desire should be. You know, we're talking about to know him, to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death here in this physical world, so that we would, if he, as he, if he jumped down to that verse 21 again, that we would be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Look, we can't subdue our own bodies. It's difficult. I mean, you know, James talks about it and says, if you can just control your tongue, you can learn how to control the whole body. You can learn how to be perfect. And that's a difficult thing because we have a hard time controlling that tongue. But one thing that we find very clear here is he says he is going to change our vile body. Now, you know, some people will, will, will look at this and say, well, my flesh is vile. And, and then they, if you will, they begin to despise the flesh. Now, you don't despise the flesh into, if you will, self-loathing and self-harm. What he's talking about here is he's talking about the the sinfulness that exists, that desire to do the things that are contrary to God, which he's talked about throughout this book and throughout other Pauline epistles. 
So what we begin to see here is he's talking about that promise where one day we are not going to have to worry about those issues. And that's what we press towards. In the meantime, in order to accomplish what God wants us to, we have to have the mind of Christ. And if you will, in kind of a seamless, you know, a segue into the next chapter, he starts talking about, if you will, a good example of what that looks like. He always provides a great example. And in chapter 4 of Philippians, he says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Judas and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with with other of my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Now, before we get into some of these practical things that he talks about what happens when we have this mind of Christ, one of the very first things he begins to identify is Without the mind of Christ, there will be division. Without the mind of Christ, there will be a division between believers. And we can find that very clearly when you go over to to 1 Corinthians. He talks about that division. There's other places that talks about division. He talks about it in James. He talks about it uh, um, in, uh, um, in Hebrews to a degree. He talks about it in other passages where we very see, very clearly see this, this, this conflict between individuals. And he points out two individuals here that are off, obviously having some sort of problem. And we'll get to them in just a minute. But they, 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 here they are. They're called out in scripture, if you will, to knock it off, so to speak. Uh, he, he's calling them out very specifically saying that they have to do something. But I want you to see how he addresses it. You know, Paul makes mention of how we should engage in our words in a way that is edifying. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says in verse 26, let no corrupt, or 29, excuse me, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Our words are supposed to be edifying. And some people, they don't have that concept of what edification looks like, uh, how to speak to each other in that way, and to communicate that grace. But again, God is great in that he gives us an example. We take a look here at what Paul says in verse 1, and while somebody may think, well, it's just kind of a flowery salutation that you know some people would just label as it's just fake and it's just meant to butter somebody up. Uh, that, no, that's not Paul. Look, if Paul's got a problem with you, he's not going to butter you up. <laughs> he's going to be very straightforward with you. He's going to take care of the matter. Uh, but what he says here is truly indicative of the heart of Paul. So in order to accomplish Ephesians 4.29, there has to be a change of the heart, specifically having that mind of Christ. And again, that mind of Christ, no reputation, form of a servant, humble and obedient. And what we find here is he does exactly that. Look at how he communicates his care. Look at how he communicates 
if you will, his humbleness. He's not, he's not coming in there and, and if you will, uh, you know, kicking in the chairs or kicking the doors in and kicking over chairs and walking in and saying, well, I'm Paul and I got authority here. You guys need to knock it off. And sometimes people do that. But, but look at how he approaches the situation. Look at how he approaches all of them. He says, brethren, brethren. Here he is, he, because it is bond of Christ in his blood that has brought us close together, and being in the same body, we are of one, if you will, one spirit, one body, one mind, as he talks about in Ephesians 4, the very first part of it. He talks about, in Ephesians 2, talking about the, 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 the if you will, the wall, the partition between Jew and Gentile. And how Jesus Christ broke that down. The Jews were having issues. They didn't want to deal with the Gentiles because they looked at Gentiles as unclean. And the Gentiles wouldn't want anything to do with the Jews because they saw them all as Pharisees. So the end result is, is there's this wall and Jesus Christ comes in, breaks that down through his sacrifice saying, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're bond or free, barbarian, Scythian, male, female. It doesn't make a difference. A soul is a soul. A soul needs salvation. So when we get to this point where he's talking about brethren, he's talking about it in a familial sense. A familial sense. You know, sometimes people will just call each other bro. Or they will just kind of abbreviate. And and if you think about that for a moment, you kind of wonder, where are they getting that mentality from? Well, because people have an affiliation together. They will consider themselves brothers. People that serve in the same military unit, they're brothers. People that see even serve in the same branch of military are brothers. People that, that, that are, are, are of the same occupation, maybe even in the same workplace, consider each other brothers or familial in that nature. And they have a very distinct, if you will, care for one another. Now, it's not the same kind of care that Paul's expressing. Because again, the, the, the care of the world is limited. Whenever we see anything that is uh, similar in form to what we see in Scripture, there's a limitation to it. And the reason there's a limitation is because of the failings of the flesh. As an example, love. Well, the world has and expresses love, but it's not the same kind of love that a believer can express. Even in a marriage or in a parental child relationship, in a friendship or in the body of Christ, that love that binds us is God. It says God is love. So in order to really truly understand what love is, you have to know God. If you don't know God, you're not going to have the kind of love that needs to be there. Same thing with joy. People can have a semblance of joy. You find over there that uh, over, over there in the um, oh, um, book of Esther, uh, it talks about how Haman had joy because he was he, he, because of his plot. Um, it also talks about the that uh, uh, the folly, if you will, of fools is counted joy to them. Now it's not the same kind of joy. It's not the same type of spiritual product that comes from the Holy Spirit that we find in Galatians. It is something else. 
And again, that joy only goes so far because when Haman, he had that joy, quote unquote, he's kind of looking at himself, kind of, if you will, lifted up a little bit with pride because of it. His joy became because of his own pride, but the end result is because it was not Holy Spirit driven. When his plans failed, his joy flew away. It was gone. It was there for a moment and then gone in an instant. Because he, just for a brief second, you know, here he is thinking he's got this plan all down. And then he finds out that Mordecai is getting promoted and all this stuff. His plans are coming to naught. And he's just getting frustrated. Because his evil is being thwarted by God. And when you get to this point of where you begin to look at what God's talking about, specifically with this joy that we find talked about throughout Philippians, there's a connection that's there, and it is a brotherly, it is a sisterly, it is a family connection. You know, over in John chapter 1, it says that we are called sons of God. We are together. Whether we're, you know, of the same blood relationship here on earth makes no difference. The blood relation of Jesus Christ being born again in that adopted family of God, if you will, that principle and doctrine of adoption that we see in Scripture, that is more uh, um, secure and that is, if you will, more sure than even blood relationships. Blood relationships can fail, can't they? I mean, we're, we're all familiar that with families that have outs on with, with some people and, you know, disagreements and things like that. Now, again, we see that the world, they only go so far with that. With a brotherhood, it only goes so far until you betray the brotherhood. Well, some people would, would think it applies the same to the body of Christ, but it doesn't. Look, you're in the body of Christ. You're my brother and sister. Regardless of what you do and regardless of what I do. Now again, we may uh, um, have something that has come between us. There may be a sin that has occurred that that that, uh, that breaks some of that fellowship. But regardless, we're all going to see each other in heaven one day. <laughs> That's a given. That that can't be undone. So here he is, and he's communicating this bond of unity, a brotherhood. The sibling relationship, the closeness that they have towards each other. And he says, my brethren, and he says, dearly beloved, and he actually says, dearly beloved, twice. He says, my uh, uh, my brethren, dearly beloved, and then in the very end of the verse, he says, my dearly beloved. He's repeating himself because he wants to communicate this principle. You look at that word dearly, and he's talking about something that is dear to him. Now, you know, we, we often sign or, or, you know, begin letters with dear such and such. And we kind of do that, if you will, in a sense of not really thinking about dear. I mean, to be honest with it, most of the time it should be to whom it may concern. <laughs> but nobody writes letters anyways, hardly at all. So it's usually, you know, we send a text message and it's like, yo, sup. You know, we do something of that nature. There's no dear involved in it. We've kind of degraded our language to a point that we no longer communicate that care. So when we start asking this question about what is dear to ourselves, the brothers and sisters in Christ should be dear to us. Regardless of what happens here in this life, 
regardless of how many failings we may have, this goes hand in hand with what was going on with the disciples when they they were asking, well, how, how many times should I forgive my brother? He says 70 times 7. And then when Jesus Christ says, if he offends you seven times a day and he repents, you forgive him seven times a day. And again, he's not asking for fruits of repentance. He's not asking for proof. He's not asking for anything of that nature in that passage. He just says, do it. And then again, as I said before, the disciples immediately respond with, well, increase our faith. And then God says, it's not about faith. It's about obedience. I told you to do it. You do your duty and do it, whether you feel like it or not. And what we find here is in this passage, he's communicating a dearness towards these people, dearly. He calls them dearly beloved. And it communicates a very strong desire towards them, if you will, a deep care, a deep affection towards them, especially with that word beloved. Beloved is often used. You go over and you find over in 1 John, John uses that phrase a lot when talking to his believer, uh, uh, the believers he's writing to. He uses it a lot. And here, here's John who is called the disciple whom Jesus loved, and here he is talking the most about love in all of Scripture. But yet at the same time, at one point in time, he was so angry at people rejecting Christ that he wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn down an entire village. But we find there's a very big difference after the Lord has been allowed to work in his life. And here Paul is doing the same thing. And I want you to think about this for a second. Here's an individual who at one point in time did not consider a Christian dear and did not consider them a beloved. He considered them an enemy of the state. He considered them an enemy of God. He considered them uh, worthy of being put to death, to be beaten, to be imprisoned, to do horrible things to them. That's what he considered them to be. Now, as a believer, we very clearly see that, you know, those things are not the way we treat people. But what we do and what we should have in our heart, and this is a communication of his heart, not just, again, flowery words to to kind of flatter a person. He's calling them dearly beloved because they have had that impact in his life. As a believer, we should have that impact. That we could be called dearly beloved by another brother or sister in Christ. If we're not having that kind of an impact, then we actually have to take a look at our actions and our words and what's going on in our heart. If we don't, if somebody is exhibiting that to us and we still don't have that type of response, then we are the ones that have to take a look at our heart and say, well, why am I not, you know, you know, considering these people dear and beloved? They have to be. If they're not considered dearly beloved, then, then again, why even bother going to church? Because again, a dearly beloved person that is, if you will, of a familial unit is going to be somebody that has an, has an impact in your life that does something. And we find here very clearly he does that or they, they do that. But before we get to that part, as you look at verse one a little bit more, he says, therefore, my brother and dearly beloved and longed for. 
I mean, he just keeps going at this point. And this is, if you will, communicating that edification and communicating this grace. He's not saying this, again, to lift them up or puff them up. He's saying this because this is truly his thought and his his desire towards them. This isn't just some sort of emotion. This is just, this is true spiritual connection with these believers. With, the, with this church that's at Philippi and those that congregation that was there. And he says that they're longed for. They're longed for. You ever have that person in your life that, you know, you see him coming down the hall and you just immediately duck into the nearest hall, whether it's a closet, bathroom, edge of a cliff, whatever it may be. You just like, you see that person, you're like, I don't, not today. I just don't want to deal with them today. And you immediately go the other direction. Now, I understand if there's a, a person that is oppressive in their nature uh, as an unbeliever. But I will tell you this, when it comes to a person that is a believer, that is a, a t- truly dearly beloved and a brother or sister in Christ, then you know what has to happen? We have to have that desire for them, to long for them. I look forward to seeing people in church. Not just because it, quote unquote, would make me feel good as a pastor. There, there are some people that are out there like that. They, they look on a crowd and they see a crowd of the X number of people. They're excited. They see a crowd that's a little bit less than what it should be. And all of a sudden they're down. Now, again, if there is because a person is sick or something of that nature and they're truly, if you will, grieving and, 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 and worried about that individual and caring in that nature, that their heart is sad, as we saw with some of the other individuals in Scripture that did that. Okay, I get that. But uh, but if it's just because people want the pews filled and they want the number of seats and they want it packed out so that they can feel successful, then they've got the wrong reason. You shouldn't long for people to fill a church because it's going to fill the church and, and you get to build a bigger church. No, this is about you long to see them because you actually care. You actually care. And I dare say that there's many pastors in pulpits today that don't care. There are people that are out there, they don't care. They they, they care about numbers more than the actual individuals. They, they, they care about, um, if you will, whether they're considered successful by their peers rather than anything else. You know, it, it, it's a great thing when you can have a fellowship you know, I, I, you know, just having an opportunity and a time to sit down with somebody and just strictly talk Bible or to just talk in such a way that you walk away encouraged and edified, that should be something that we as believers long for in our life. You know, there's certain things that we have long for. Sometimes, you ever have that happen? Or is it just me? You just get a craving sometimes. You're just like, out of the blue, you're just, you're minding your own business or whatever, and somehow maybe it's a smell, maybe it's a random thought, somebody says a trigger word, whatever it may be, but immediately you get this thought and you just have this craving for it. And that craving, you just, I mean, it becomes one of those things that you're like, you've got to get that. Whether it's a piece of food or whatever it may be, it's just something that you get. And then it just kind of, if you will, there's that satisfaction and it's just like, oh, and you enjoy it. 
That's the way it's supposed to be with, with, with brothers and sisters in Christ. We should long for one another at the same time when we do have interaction with one another, it should be one that is demonstrating the care of Christ, the, 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 the servant uh, mindset of Christ, and also the very, very clearly talking about the care that Christ exhibited. I can't even begin to describe him. I mean, there he is, and he sees the nation of Israel, and he looks upon them, and he sees them, and he's sorrowful because why? He says they're a sheep with no shepherd. He sees they're lost, and they're just, everybody's abandoned them. But he longs for them. I mean, think about the way that God longs for Israel. He longs for them to do the right thing. He longs for them to be with him. He longs for them to be the people that he's asked them to be. And and what do we wind up seeing with that? Even though they have massive failings, God still longs for them. And we would look at that, that type of a relationship and we would say, man, you're on your own. You burnt your bridge, you nuked it, you, you, you even eroded the, the shoreline to make sure that we never build a bridge back over it, you know. We would look at it and just say, well, I'm done with you. But thank, thank God for his long suffering. And he just continues to demonstrate it. That he, here's Paul longing for these individuals. Even though they may have some failings, he still longs to see them. He still longed to see the church at Corinth, even though they were just absolutely in shambles. He still longed to see them. He still had a desire to do that. He still longed for those that were in Galatia, even though they had, as he said, been bewitched. They'd been tricked, they'd been fooled, and they were going some other direction. He still had a longing for them. They were still very dear to him. And we find the same thing here in verse 4. But here he is, he goes one step further, this, you know, talking about this, uh, um, brethren, dearly beloved, long for that desire of fellowship, that presence being there with them, not just, you know, thinking about them, but actually being with them, that desire for spiritual engagement. Look at what he says here. He calls them two things, my joy and crown, my joy and crown. Now, he talks about joy in the previous chapter, or a couple chapters over. In chapter 2, and in verse 2, he says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And he says, this is how we go about fulfilling that joy. Having the same desire. Having the same thought process. Now look, you get 50 people together, and they're going to have 50 different opinions. I guarantee you, you might find some similarities, but everybody's going to go through and they're going to find something different. You know, on one hand, you might find somebody that dislikes green beans as much as you do, but then at the same time, they turn around and they say they love Brussels sprouts. And you're like, ah, whatever it may be. You may think that they, 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 they dislike green beans and then you say, oh man, but you know what? I really like a good donut. And they go, oh, gross. Cause they can't stand donuts. And you're like, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> but everybody's going to have a different opinion. But this isn't talking about opinions. This is talking about true spiritual connection that supersedes, if you will, superficial 
differences. That goes beyond that. And here he is, he's saying, you can fulfill my joy by just having the mind of Christ. And here he is, he and he calls them that because this is his desire, this is what he wants, and he says, they're my joy. When's the last time you had a, 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 a godly spiritual engagement with a person that you could actually say that person brought joy into your life through the Holy Spirit. Now, now, now here, here, here's where it gets into this. If you go over to, to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. So we find very clearly here that these are all things that, that have a spiritual connection with God. That spiritual connection is taught and given to us by the Holy Spirit. So here's how it works. We receive that fruit of the Spirit. We let Him demonstrate these things in our life that we see through the Holy Scriptures that we, you know, receive from Him. And it moves us and motivates us to again have the same kind of fruit in our life, mirroring that and to give to someone else. As he considers us trees, as we've talked about before, the one thing that a tree does is a tree bears fruit. But a tree does not bear fruit for the purpose of itself. The tree bears fruit for somebody else to eat it. So if we are a a tree and we are to bring forth our fruit in our season, going back over to Psalm 1, guess what happens? We're bearing it so somebody else can partake of it and enjoy it. So if we have joy as part of that fruit, and again, remember, it's all compromised in one fruit. There isn't just a, a, a fruit of joy and a fruit of love and a fruit of faith. No, it's all together. And if we have that godly spiritual fruit and somebody takes it, they're going to receive that joy. Because we're giving it. Now here's Paul, who if you will, is probably more mature than these people. By sure we know he's more mature in the faith. He is receiving fruit from them. So it's regardless of status. It's regardless of position. It's regardless of what ministry we have. That fruit is given in such a way that a person enjoys that, receives that, and does something with it in a way that they, in turn, will do that with themselves and they will begin to take those seeds and then be fruitful and they will give it that being fruitful and multiplying type concept. The same thing is true with the fruit of the Spirit where we should have that abounding in us and that we should be abundant in that fruit so that many people can partake of it. So that when we come together as believers, when we have interactions, we can say, that person is my joy. I enjoy being around them. I rejoice when I'm around them, to, and we rejoice in God together. We find that this joy is something that's very important. He even talks about it in the very, in verse four, which we didn't read of Philippians four, where he talks about rejoicing and we'll get to that. But here he is, he's calling these individuals, he's saying, my joy. 
And he, he says the same thing when we took a look at uh, um, Philippians 2.2. 2, uh, we looked over there in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, and he talked a little bit about how how they were, again, providing some of that, if you will, encouragement and uplifting to Paul, even when they're going through difficult trials. These are all things that we see that, that, that the Lord is using these individuals to do something, to help each other. And, and, and again, he wants to see these people being fruitful with that joy that he can receive it. He calls them my joy. And then he says, he says, crown, my joy and crown. Now, when somebody wears a crown, you know, we, 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 in in today's day and age, we would think of them as rather pretentious. You know, you see a, a, a woman that goes about and she puts her on her own little tiara. We'd say, well, obviously she never got past, say, you know, being six. But here he's not talking about a physical crown. He's talking about a glory. This is something that's very true about an individual that they represent the glory of God. That's what that crown is about. You know, when a person engages in such a way that they have this bond of fellowship that we see in the first part, and they're bearing fruit of joy in a person's life, what happens just naturally is God is going to get the glory in all of that. And we get to rejoice in that. And this crown of glory, if you will, this crown that he's he's looking at here is something that encourages and, if you will, motivates him to, to again, be with them, long for them, and, again, to ask them to do something. And, again, these aren't just a bunch of flowery words that he's putting out here just for the purpose of, of puffing them up so that they'll do what he asks. This is truly from his heart. This is how he views them. And the next thing he goes into is standing fast. Therefore, my brethren and dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Now again, here we find this standing fast, and we see a lot of that talking about over in Ephesians 6, talking about standing against the wiles of the devil, standing strong in the Lord, and we understand that that's very scripturally uh, um, found uh, with with the word of God to to be able to stand. All of those elements of the, the, the armor of God are found in scripture. But what we find is very clearly here, here he's talking about this standing fast and this desire that they would do that. He doesn't want them to fall. Over there, when a person isn't standing fast, over in Ephesians 6, they're falling to, the, the, if you will, the darts of the devil. They're taken out. They become a casualty on the battlefield. Now, if you go back to chapter 1 of Philippians and look in verse 27... He says here, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. As we see here, this is what he's desiring, and then he tells them how to go about doing it. But here he says that his desire is that they would stand fast in one spirit. Stand fast in one spirit and still have that mind of Christ together. 
In order to stand together, a person has to think the same way. If a person is being selfish, they become a weak link. They create a gap. They create a hole that is easily overcome. But what we see here is this is something that he talks about throughout Scripture. He talks about standing fast. He talks about it also in the form of being steadfast. Turn to a couple of passages. Go, let's go back over to 1 Corinthians 15 where we were. Said we were going to try to get back there. And praise the Lord we did. 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, and if you will, jump down there to verse 58 after we, we hear about this victory over death and over sin. And here we see in verse 58 of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved... And this is, again, understanding these things that he's just talked about. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here he is trying to encourage the church at Corinth that they be steadfast, not wavering. Unmovable specifically is what he says. And I'll tell you this, you know, in this day and age, people are moved very easily. They're moved very easily. They can, as he talks about over there in the book of Ephesians, they're blown about with every wind of doctrine. One wind comes in and just like a leaf, they go to one side of the yard. The other doctrine blows the other way, they go to the other side of the yard. Strong enough, one gets lifted up, they go up into the roof, into the gutter. (laughs) Some some way, shape, or form, they get blown about and, and, and they're not steadfast. And this is what God desires for us in this life. This is what Paul's telling them. And in order to do that, we have to have that mind of Christ, which is no reputation, form of a servant, humble and obedient. Those four principles that we see that, that, that Christ was exemplifying is that mind that will keep us steadfast. Anything else is going to weaken our stance. It's going to weaken our stance. Turn back over to Galatians and Galatians five again, specifically in Galatians five chapter one, uh, chapter five verse one. <clears throat> Here he is telling the same thing, and you can find this kind of as a similar thread throughout most of the Pauline epistles. In verse one of chapter five, he says, "Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage." You know, sin and illegalism, that form of bondage, creates an unsteady spiritual walk. It puts a weight on you that you can't handle. Here here these Galatians are being, if you will, uh, um, burdened with this, uh, you got to keep the law. Peter even told the, the, over there in chapter 11 after he was, uh, you know, um, or um, not in chapter 11, but after he was talking uh, uh, with Paul and, and Peter made it very clear, he says, we cannot expect the Gentiles to keep any of our laws. We can't expect them to keep, you know, to stay away from pork and shrimp, and we can't expect them to, 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 you know, be circumcised in all of these other things. And we can't expect that because we didn't even do that. How can we expect them to do it? And they realized that the main thing was that mind of Christ. How do we think? 
And here he is, he's saying, look, stand fast. And he says, stand fast in liberty. Now, liberty is an amazing thing. Liberty is an amazing thing. And look, long before America even was associated with liberty, liberty existed only in the Lord. The form of liberties that we have here are incomplete. They're, they're not adequate. The liberty we have in Christ, though, is very different. And sometimes people think liberty is, 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 is the freedom to do whatever they want. No, liberty has to have bounds. Liberty has certain things that are there. Even here in the United States, we understand that concept. I mean, we have, we have something called the Bill of Rights for a reason. And that Bill of Rights for, 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 for us as individuals puts a bound on government. Puts a bound on what the government can do. What the government can do to its constituents. Many people don't understand that concept. Many people haven't even read the first paragraph of the Bill of Rights before it gets into Article 1, or Amendment 1. Before it even gets there, there's, there, there's this, this language that's in there that says that these are necessary so that the people will have confidence in their government. I often wonder if any of the senators or legislators have ever read that part. <laughs> it's there for a reason. It keeps them in, in, in a certain, if you will, boundary. We have boundaries as Christians. We have liberty, but we do not have liberty to sin. We, we have liberty in Christ. And look, you can, you can be as, 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 Loving and caring beyond anybody else if you want. You can just, you can go to the nines on that. And that pleases God, by the way. You have liberty to do those things. We do have liberty to eat pork and shrimp. As long as it doesn't make another person stumble. If you've got a young believer and they don't know certain things, and you do something that causes them to go, wait, what? And it's from a lifestyle that they came out of? You may cause a bit of a stumbling block. And under no nature are we supposed to be a stumbling block to any believer. So that may mean, as he said, if it causes a stumbling block, I will eat no meat. Paul was saying he'd be a vegetarian. If it meant that a Christian would grow. I dare say in the United States of America, there are very few people that would have that mentality in most of the churches around today, <laughs> especially Baptist churches. Seventh day Adventists, you'd probably get them, but then they're not really believing in Jesus anyways. But you know, you, you, you get into that mentality where people are just, you know, what are they doing? Is it for them or is it for someone else? That would be a tough thing for, 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 for an ask of us. But Paul was willing to be that sacrifice and say, it's just not worth it. What's worth it is to see the Christian grow. 
That's where the joy comes in. That's where the glory comes in. So here he's saying, saying, saying being steadfast. Steadfast. Turn over to Ephesians 4. We reference this a little bit, but Ephesians 4 and in verse uh, 14, he says again something very similar. <clears throat> in, in, uh, um, in this concept, this is the verse, I'm sorry, that I was going to read earlier. It says in verse 14, it says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, by the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And he says, but speaking the truth in love, uh, in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. The idea is growing up. You know, when you're young, you want to grow up, but then you realize what it's like to be an adult. And then you're like, can I go back? No, you can't. And then you, you, you have children and you try to get your children to grow up the right way. And then, you know, what eventually happens is eventually they kind of start growing up and they start being mature. And then they, you're like, oh, okay, this is actually working. And then they do something immature. <laughs> and then you do something immature. But you know what? When it comes to being a Christian, that growing up process is continual. It doesn't end until we have a glorified body. We need to understand that. This is why he's phrasing it, and this is why that segue is right there with that last part of chapter 3. We stand fast knowing these things, knowing that one day we'll get that, knowing one day we'll have those things. Turn over to one last passage uh, over here in um, oh, uh, 2 Thessalonians. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> And again, Thessalonians having some difficulties with things that are being, uh, uh, the, the things that are persecuting them. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1, he says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by him, uh, by our gathering together unto him, he's reminding, he's saying, we're gonna see him one day, just hang on guys, just hang on. He says that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter from us, as that day of Christ is at hand. You know, there's a lot of people troubled by what's going on right now. A lot of people are troubled. A lot of people are are are, are genuinely fearful, are generally anxiety-ridden, and are generally worried. Including Christians. Including Christians. But here he's saying, look, just keep this in mind. We're going to be gathered together one day, all together, all together. He says, don't be shaken in your mind. Don't be shaken in your mind or be troubled. Don't let anything do it. Spirit, word, letter, whatever it is, he says, don't let it shake you. It's part of that immovable, unmovable, standing fast in the Lord. And this is what he's desiring for these, his beloved, dearly beloved, his, his, his joy, his crown, the ones that he longs for. He says, I just, just stand fast. And I love that part over there when, when the nation of Israel is freaking out when they come to the Red Sea and Moses gets over there and he says, Stand still, says, fear not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. 
You know what? A lot of times people, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, I just don't see God working in my life. In, in, with, with grace and with love, you have to sometimes ask, are you standing still long enough to see it? Are you standing still long enough to see it? Do you meditate on what God's doing for you? Do you actually sit back and go, all right, God, I'm going to let you handle it. Many times people don't see it because they're not letting God. You know what happens? Is they start trying to do it and God goes, I I can take care of it. Get your hand out of there. They want to do it themselves. And you know what happens? God says, okay. (laughs) Go ahead. By the way, I'll be right over here when you need me. Because I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And I'll watch you go through that. And I'll help you in the end. And and, and watch this. You're going to see my hand eventually in all of it. Even in the big, fat mistakes that we make. (laughs) And it's amazing to see. Now, I know I didn't get very far with chapter 1 here, uh, but there's a lot to talk about with that. I didn't even cover things like being immovable or anything of that nature. But next week we'll talk about these two individuals that seem to be having some sort of disagreement. Now, the interesting thing is, is it's never told to us what it is. Now, there's some things in Scripture that are never told to us that we will never know. But what we can do is we can look at it and we look at the principle. Because sometimes what do we do? We will focus on the minutiae of something rather than actually what the principle is. We'll focus on the one tree without understanding that we're standing in a forest. So we have to understand what's going on here in this passage. And again, the mindset of Christ is what is being uh, uh, taught as the principle in this passage. And we'll get there, Lord willing, next week. But let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for all that you've given to us. Thank you again for just the encouragement, the edification, and the care that we have through you and through your word, through your Holy Spirit, and through each other, Lord, that we're not alone um, we have, obviously, you are there, and above all, that is of the most importance. The Lord, you didn't even bat an eye to say, I'm going to give us, give us other believers to help encourage and edify and comfort. And Lord, again, I just thank you for that. I thank you again for what we've learned this uh, evening. I pray, Lord, you just take us home safely tonight, and that we will come back safely um, for those on um, uh, Saturday for the ladies' uh, luncheon, and then also again on Sunday, Lord, as we come together to worship and praise you. And this I ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.